San Diego veterans work to get Afghan allies to safety. You'll find a lot of veterans who said, look, these folks were vetted. They saved our lives. It's obscene that they're not living here already. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The Mingay Museum reopens with art and radical hospitality. You know, this building was designed to be beautiful. And, and back to that, that ethos of Mingay, we want people to feel like they can have a beautiful experience here. And we'll hear from another artist from the San Diego Rep's Latinx New Play Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. They waited for days as the chaos increased at the Kabul airport. Yesterday, several Afghan families from El Cajon told their stories of escape. Here's Mohammed Faizi. It was really hard for us to pass the Taliban gate. And they told us, why you guys are leaving Afghanistan? Why you guys not staying here with us? I told them, that's our country. That's my nation. We're living there. So we have to get out of here. So finally, I was four days stuck inside the base with my five kids through the sunshine, no shelter, nothing. Officials say the U.S. is still working to help hundreds of former interpreters and allies get out of Afghanistan. In addition, private groups of U.S. veterans from the war in Afghanistan have been scrambling to help. I spoke with Sean Van Diver, a San Diego Navy vet, about the rescue project he formed called Hashtag Afghan Evac. He spoke about how it came together and how it's evolved since American troops left the country earlier this week. Hello, Maureen. Thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Do we have an estimate of how many Afghan allies may have been left behind? You know, tracking down those numbers are really hard because there's, you know, numerous lists. The State Department isn't sharing a lot of information out of outside. They're taking a lot of information in. We expect that the U.S. government will share some of that information soon. So the real answer is it's somewhere between a few thousand and tens of thousands. Sean, give us a sense of how these individuals assisted U.S. troops during the course of the war. Sure. You know, the the big story is that there's all these folks that act as interpreters, uh, but there's folks that acted as drivers. There's people that cleaned up the bases that, that, you know, ran kind of the little cities that were on these Ford operating bases and the larger bases themselves. And look, the reality here is that many of these folks uh, were vetted in country and we trusted them to be armed and to protect our our troops over there. You would be hard-pressed to find a, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan who worked with interpreters that can't tell you a story about a time that that interpreter saved their life. Among the motivations for doing this, you'll find a lot of veterans who said, look, these folks were vetted. They saved our lives. It's obscene that they're not living here already. Well, speaking of stories, there's one person Afghan Evac helped leave the country, an interpreter named Assad. Can you tell us about his story? Assad is an interpreter who worked with U.S. forces. Uh, he's from a village called Urgun, 
and alongside with my pal Lucky. And I met Assad after he was in Afghanistan during this trip because my friend Lucky was out there and we were trying to get a hold of Lucky and <laughs> we we got connected to Assad who was also in Kabul. So um, both Lucky and Assad had a harrowing journey to get from where they were in Afghanistan to the airport, but they're here now safely. And you know, these folks were already living here in San Diego. We have a pretty large population of interpreters who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, living out in East County, mostly kind of centered around El Cajon. You know, one of the one of the commitments that I expect to be held to and that I've made is that the Truman Project chapter here, members of our Truman Project chapter and and friends of mine, we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to cause there to be a welcoming an even more welcoming community here in San Diego for these these patriots who are every bit the veteran that that I am and others who wore the uniform of the U.S. military. What options are left now for those stranded in Afghanistan? Well, those are still kind of being figured out, right? The State Department has a couple of charters that they're running out of the airport in, in Kabul. There's various efforts underway. But after the military evacuation stopped, the situation fundamentally changed. So We've seen a lot of, frankly, vigilante efforts of people just showing up in Kabul, and that is so dangerous and it distracts from the mission on the ground and it causes more harm than it does good. So it's really important to do this in a way that it's focused on Afghans and not focused on an American ideal of being a hero and, and centering ourselves. And I think the way that we do that is by working with these longstanding aid organizations that have been on the ground and who are coordinating with U.S. government forces. You mentioned your friend in Afghanistan, Lucky. Uh, he had quite a journey to get out of that country. Can you tell us about it? My involvement in this, and I credit a lot of the success that we had with the entire effort to Lucky because nobody can take full credit for any one life saved in this effort. The reality is that this effort, this self-organized effort was a success because of a litany of organizations that were working together, putting aside egos, political beliefs, and you know, just places that they come from and focused on one mission, and that was to save Afghan lives. And the reason that I got involved was that my friend Lucky, who lived in San Diego for years since 2016, had gone back to Kabul to take care of his sick family. His mom was in the hospital, and they flew back there in April, and everything was going fine. They were planning on flying out August 28th before the U.S. was supposed to leave, and things kind of went sideways. And so when he heard that the Taliban was coming for his province, he didn't tell his wife, didn't tell his kids, didn't tell his mom. He got in a taxi and drove the seven hours to Urgun, which was his village and his friend Assad's village. He was fighting there alongside his brothers and, and friends. And he went back there to save them and to try to get them out. He finally got in touch with me on Saturday, August 14th. And he said, brother, I'm on a mountain in Urgun. The Taliban have us surrounded. I don't know if I'm going to make it. My last wish is that you help get my family to safety. And so I, I kind of started trying to book them flights out of Kabul uh, on the next flight out. And that was before the airport fell and, uh, and hope that Lucky got back. Lucky's journey was pretty crazy. Like Lucky, all that time while we were building up capacity and setting up the op center and trying to help more folks as this thing grew, Lucky had procured a jingle truck. And if you don't know what a jingle truck is, I recommend you Google it. Procured a jingle truck you know, he dressed like a, a poor jingle truck driver, put grease all over himself. And he, he said he smelled very bad and put a turban on and let his beard grow out. And it took him two days. He drove through Taliban checkpoints. He talked his way through. He had actually, he hid all of his documents and 
you know, his, his name is lucky for a reason. It's because he got, you know, he survived two IED blasts and that moniker held and he made it back to Kabul and surprised everybody. And we were, are so happy to report that he is in San Diego right now. I've been speaking with Sean Van Diver. He's a Navy veteran, and he's been involved in the project Hashtag AfghaniVac. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. After a significant remodel, the Minge International Museum in Balboa Park will reopen to the public with free admission this weekend and an always free first floor. It's all part of their commitment to radical hospitality and art for the people. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans has the story. Three years and $55 million later, the Minge is back. The Balboa Park Institution was founded by Martha Longnecker in 1996 as a place for folk art, with the word mingay meaning art for the people. About six years ago, museum leadership started noticing wear and tear. Jessica Hansen-York is the Mingay's deputy director and chief advancement officer. In a practical sense, the transformation certainly began with some very tangible things that needed to change in the museum. We needed new floors. Our lighting had become obsolete. But they soon began to wonder just what else could be possible in the space. The desire to really restore and reinvigorate this historic building we're in, the goal to connect more to this gorgeous park that we sit in the center of, and most importantly, to better serve our visitors, to be more open, to be more welcoming, and to be more accessible. Hanson York said that the museum is driven by the idea of radical hospitality. With the renovation, the Mingay didn't add a large amount of extra square footage, just one outdoor patio and a second floor terrace overlooking the park but they did completely transform how the existing space is used and who it is for. First and foremost, we want every visitor who walks in the door to feel welcome, to feel like they belong here, that this is their museum. You know, this building was designed to be beautiful. And, and back to that, that ethos of Minge, we want people to feel like they can have a beautiful experience here. This ethos is clear in the two opening exhibitions, particularly Humble Spirit, Priceless Art, curated by the museum's director, Rob Seidner. People will come to understand that uh, priceless, priceless works of art are not about money, right? Again, it's about the spirit of a piece, the beauty of something, utility of an object. This weekend, the Mingay officially reopens, offering free admission to everyone through Monday. The grand opening includes several events, including Sunday's musical migrations. Art of a Land instrumentalists will serenade visitors with performances throughout the museum. Among the selections, Kate Hatmaker and Jinyan Bokat will perform folk duets that Polish composer Grzyna Batsevich premiered during World War II in an underground concert series. Moving forward, the first floor of the museum will always be free. This is where the new craft cafe is, as well as shop mingay, an art from the museum's collection. In October, the full-service restaurant and bar will open in the public commons. 
Also worth a peek are site-specific permanent installations like the large-scale functional textile works by Cloudy Youngstra, Christina Kim, and Petra Blaze. And don't forget to look up. Dave Chihuly's iconic glass chandelier now hangs in a newly revealed tower. One ceiling is actually a large-scale replica of a player piano roll. Another has ceiling tiles that look like subtle origami folds. Architect Jennifer Luce also used the design to draw attention to existing architectural features, and she added a series of new glass entrance doors. This adds light and access. The public can come in and rest or even just pass through. You know, we really envision that within a few weeks, a few months, that this commons level of the museum, especially once the restaurant opens, is a bustling, welcoming hub in the center of the park. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Gift Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Nicolas Valdez's play Conjunto Blues will be performed at this year's Latinx New Play Festival. The festival is put on by the San Diego Rep and takes place online and in person starting today and runs through the weekend. Valdez spoke with KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando about his play, and here's that interview. Nicholas, you are one of the playwrights in the Rep's Latinx New Play series. And talk a little bit about your play, because this is something that's been going on through workshops for a few years now. Yeah, the show's been in development roughly seven years, and it's about sort of my experiences growing up in South Texas around the conjunto music culture. And I think more specifically, it's really kind of a, an ode, if you will, to my grandparents' generation, uh, those who really coming out of this um, depression era experience really, I think, kind of created a pathway for a Mexican-American identity. And so the, the work is being featured at this year's uh, festival, not as a new work, right, but as feature of, of an established work. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to continue to discover new audience uh, audiences for the work. I think that it speaks to a gap in sort of the Mexican-American narrative. It's, it's not a story that's very common or commonly produced or, or, or seen in media. And um, I feel like it's, you know, filling a gap uh, in kind of the, uh, the narrative and, and a chance to uh, reclaim a Mexican-American identity. And I, and I think it's important to express how much of an American experience this is. 
you know, my grandparents, having come from that post-depression generation, you know, fought in World War II, right, were factory workers, right, all very um, American experiences that I was able to kind of capture in, in, in this show. And it's really kind of the, the stories uh, that I grew up with. And before we talk more specifically about the play, define for people what conjunto music is really like and, and what defines it, what defines the sound and the feel of it. I think that conjunto is really the, the origin of accordion-based Mexican-American music. You know, the evolution of conjunto music became norteño, became banda, became these other genres, tejano. But conjunto music, I think before you know, it was on both sides of the border. Uh, recording musicians from northern Mexico were recording um, in areas around Texas and Arizona. And it's um, an amalgamation of uh, German-influenced accordion music, uh, polkas, uh, schottisches, uh, waltzes, redovas, those kinds of things, combined with the corrido tradition in Mexico, this sort of storytelling tradition. And those two came together, you know, right around the mid-1800s or so, when there was a mass uh, immigration of Germanic uh, uh, influence, you know, in the, what they call the German belt in central Texas. And that exposed, uh, you know, Mexicanos that were living on this side of the border to accordion music. And they adapted that and created their own genre out of it. A very American music, you know, uh, uh, much like the blues or Zydeco or any of these other sort of folk traditions. But I think that because it's a Spanish language based music, it never really fit into the to the pantheon of, of American music. And that's one thing that I really try to do with the show is let folks know that this is very much American music. And what kind of role did the music play in terms of the community and in the lives of people? And, you know, where would this music have been heard and, and kind of inspiration did it provide to people? Well, I mean, I think like all of our other experiences in this country, you know, I mean, we really had to fight to define spaces for ourselves. And the accordion um, allowed people to come together and celebrate through all of their struggles and traumas. And, you know, uh, uh, we're able to create these places where they could reinforce cultural values and speak in their own language and practice all those important rites of passage, like birthdays and weddings and funerals and quinceañeras. And so it was really fundamental, I think, in creating a Mexican-American identity. The accordion in conjunto like evolved in the same way that the Mexican-American working class did in this country, you know, from the migrant routes of the 20s and 30s up along up to the Midwest and parts of the Pacific, right? Places like Seattle and Chicago. And then, you know, the accordion, those musicians followed those routes. And then eventually, you know, after World War II, these communities came back and established working class communities in these cities, right? And so then clubs started popping up in these areas, right? So the accordion and conjunto music, I think, really is the soundtrack to the Mexican-American working class experience of the 20th century. Now, you refer to yourself as a cultural arts activist, and I'm just wondering, what is it about art that can kind of reach people in a different way and can possibly move them or motivate them differently than, you know, reading a news story or reading a book or something like that? What is it about, you know, this kind of live theater that you think is important? Well, I, I come from a tradition of teatro, right? Um, which I think is, you know, very different from sort of what we consider theater. Uh, you know, for me, coming from the sort of rascuache uh, teatro, you know, founded by Teatro Campesino and Luis Valdez, right? I mean, I'm part of that legacy. And it's theater with a 
with a purpose, right? Like an urgency. Um, and also because our stories are not part of mainstream American culture and, and the mainstream American narrative. So for me, it's, it was always important just to tell these stories that people may or may not have ever heard. Um, and I think that there is, there is a magic that happens in, in, in that engagement in live theater. Um, there's a, this, this reciprocity of energy, and, and it gives you an opportunity to address very serious issues, to ask really important and difficult questions, but in a way that is accessible and entertaining. That was playwright Nicholas Valdez speaking with KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando. The Latinx New Play Festival takes place in person and online today through Sunday.